Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 1. It is our second sermon from Colossians, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 14 this morning. But I'm going to read chapter uh, 1, verses 3 to 18 to set the context for us. Prayer for full knowledge for the people of God. So verses 3 through 18, Colossians chapter 1. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God and Father, thank you again for your goodness. Thank you again for your mercy. And thank you, O God, that we can pray to you and you hear our prayers. And we do ask again, uh, again today, O God, that our minds, our hearts would be filled with the knowledge of you in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that in that we might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in knowledge, strengthened by you, and doing so with much thanksgiving. May this be on the basis of your redemptive work for us in Christ. Thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness. The light has shone upon the Gentiles. A light has come, and it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, uh, to better understand what is going on here and how we ought to live as your people. So give us strength, give us encouragement, and we pray, O oh God, that we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that we would uh, grow more in our understanding of theology, grow more in understanding of your word, and understanding of your world, and understanding of the new creation. So we pray, O oh God, that we would always be reformed by your word, and we pray, O oh God, even now that your people would be strengthened, we pray that say, uh, sinners would be saved, and we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, perhaps you've heard that in the Christian life, it's never one of staying in the same place. The Christian life is either one of increase or perhaps decrease, one of growing or perhaps backsliding. We should not think that once we've got to a certain level that we have arrived. That would be arrogance. That would be pride, thinking that we don't need to grow more in the things of God. Because that seems to be what Paul is praying here for the church at Colossae. We already have seen that he's thanked them and thanked God for what he's heard about them, their faith, their love, their hope, how they bear fruit grounded in the gospel. And as he transitions to the prayer portion of it, uh, uh, certainly verses 3 through 8 is prayer as well, but he he comes in verse 9 to talk about what he prays for them. And what he prays for them is that they continue on in faith, love, and hope. He prays that they would continue to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. So we should not think that we have arrived, but we also uh, we have to uh, continually seek to grow in God and grow in the things that are pleasing unto him. And remember, he is writing uh, th- uh, for this, uh, or writing these things to the church at Colossae to encourage them. Here's what I've heard about you from Epaphras, but also to strengthen them in the battle, to strengthen them in the th- with the threat of these uh, false teachers that were threat- threatening the church at Colossae, men who are perhaps blending Christianity with other things or taking a bit of Jewish ideology and a bit of Greek ideology and blending those things together uh, to make something that is not Christian at all, to make something that does not bear fruit at all, but only leads to ignorance in the things of God. Because that's a problem that I think is implied in this prayer, the problem of ignorance in the knowledge of God and ignorance in what pleases God. We just don't know who our God is, and we just really don't know what pleases him. We ought to, but sometimes we do not know such things. And so we do not know the things of God as we ought, who he is and what is pleasing to him, but also also, um, we do not know uh, 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 the things found in the Lord Jesus Christ as much as we ought as well. We must confess we ought to continually grow in the things of God. And let's be honest, the, the threats of heresy... The threats of men who teach false things has just been a problem since the beginning of time. It's just been a problem since the beginning of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised when there's empty doctrine, doctrine that claims to have knowledge, doctrine that claims to have the appearance of wisdom and understanding, but in reality is a false humility, in reality is a neglect, in reality has no value when it comes to the things of God. And so in this prayer, verses 9 through 14, Paul prays for the Colossian church that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the main focus. That's the main verb. And the rest of the verses unpack what it means to be filled with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will. So that's the prayer. That's the focus that God's people, the church at Colossae, would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And so we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, prayer for the knowledge of his will, verses 9 and 10. And then secondly, prayer for our Christian walk, verses 10 through 14. So prayer for knowledge, the knowledge of his will, verses 9 and 10. Then secondly, the prayer for our Christian walk, verses 10 through 14. So let's first look at prayer for the knowledge of his will, verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9, he says, For this reason, we also, since the day that we heard it, do not cease to pray for you 
and to ask. Again, Paul has heard the report. Paul has heard good things about them. Paul has heard of their faith, love, and hope, but he recognizes they still need to grow. They still need to be grounded uh, in the things, A, that they already know and grow from those things that they have already learned and understood. And so Paul hears these things. He's heard what Epaphras has said, and he wants to continually pray for them continually have them in his mind. I do not cease to pray for you and to ask. It doesn't mean he doesn't do anything else in the day, but he prays for them constantly. In his times of prayer, perhaps as they come up in his mind throughout the day, that's what that means. It doesn't mean we just stop having our jobs and stop you know, caring for our families. Sorry, kids, I'm just going to pray all the time. That's not what it's saying. The idea is that we continually pray. We persistently pray. We gather, we come in our closets before God Most High, and we pray before Him. And so, after He hears these things, He praises God, gives thanksgiving for all that God has done. Here's what He prays for them still. And He goes on to say, I do not cease to pray for you and to ask. And notice what He asks that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might know who God is, that your mind might be characterized by the things of God. That's what to be filled means. And the grammar and the context indicate that we do not fill ourselves with the things of God. It is God who fills our minds with the things of God. There is a passive here that you might be filled with the things of God, be filled with the knowledge of God. Now, he's going to unpack what that looks like. He's going to unpack how we fill our minds with the knowledge of God. We must recognize it comes from a God who condescends, comes from a God who reveals, a God who shines as a light in our minds. You see, the difference between philosophy and theology is philosophy seeks to ascend the mountain by contemplation. Now, I'm not against thinking, I'm not against pondering, but philosophers taught that you ascended the mountain of being to the highest being through thinking and pondering these very things. Well, Christianity is the opposite, isn't it? And that's one of the emphases of Paul in this book, is that God condescended to us by way of revelation. He condescended to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. He condescends to us in his word. We don't have to ascend, but he has revealed himself in Christ, and in his word. It is a saving theological knowledge of who he is. It's not something acquired by vain philosophy, but it is God who reveals and illumines. That's what God does in salvation. He reveals you're a wretch, and he reveals the way in the Lord Jesus Christ. He shines as a light and shows your sinfulness And he finds the way of salvation in the sinless one. That's what God does in Revelation. But brethren, after we've been changed, after we've been given a new hearts, the hope is we continually grow in the things of God. And many places in the Bible, it uses this darkness to light type of imagery. In Ephesians chapter 1, he prays when he's praying. uh, We're talking about what he prays for for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he might give you the spirit, the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You might grow more, you might understand more, as Peter Peter says, that as the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, as we learn more and consider and ponder who God is, 
May it be a joy and a blessing to us. May it be a comfort for us. And he prays that they are continually filled with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will. Now, what does his will mean here? Now, theologians have distinguished between God's decree, his will that unfolds in time and space. You see this in Ephesians chapter one with precept. That is what we must do to please our God, namely ethics, namely commandments. We see this in Romans chapter 12. So if we think in this way, we are always in the will of God in the sense as his decrees unfold, we are always in his will. And typically that's when people talk about God's will, they usually use it in that sort of context. What, what's God's will for my life? Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to have? That's what they think when it comes to God's will, right? But according to Romans 12, and I think the emphasis seems to be here, although I think there's a both end going on in Colossians, but it highlights how we ought to please him, namely his 10 commandments. And many of the times we do not do the will of God. And we might not know what job we're going to have, but we always ought to seek to praise our God by keeping his commandments, by bearing fruit in every good work, which we'll talk about when we get to bearing fruit in every good work. So we have decree and precept, but even under that idea of decree, it includes perhaps all things about God and all things on how we ought to please him. So I do think with John Davenant, the both is in view. We need to know who God is. And we need to know who God is in the mystery of his son. You see, the language of knowing is used several other times in the book. In chapter 2, 2, he says that we might uh, uh, attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the father and the son. We might know the father as he's revealed in the son, that we might know the son who reveals the father that we have might have a high view of our God who reveals himself unto us. So theology very much matters. And then later on in chapter 310, he's going to talk about how we're renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That is, in the new man, we ought to have a true saving knowledge, but ought to grow in that true saving knowledge and that communion with our God. So we know who he is, and then the hope is then we seek to live in a way that is pleasing unto him. And so we must know and be filled with the knowledge of his will. And notice the other qualifiers there in verse 9. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, some commentators have parallels going on here, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and use it to describe of the same thing. And certainly that is in view here, but perhaps knowledge could, uh, could be the content. Wisdom gives us the heavenly matter and the right use of that knowledge. And the spiritual understanding aspect highlights how it is that we learn. And notice that word, spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding. It is a work of the spirit. When we read our Bibles, we ought to pray that he gives us spiritual understanding. When we pray, dear brethren, we ought to pray that he gives us spiritual understanding. We ought to pray that he gives us spiritual strength from on high. See how important the Holy Spirit is in our lives? 
how important the Holy Spirit is in our Christian walk, how important prayer is in our Christian walk, how important reading the Bible is in our Christian walk, how important reading, hopefully, some good theology is in our Christian walk. It has to do with the divine work of God by the Spirit with the Word. And when we read it, it is a spiritual exercise that we engage in. And even in chapter 2, verse 3, contrasting with those false teachers and the false teaching, he says, in whom, after he talks about attaining the assurance, in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why many of the old writers call wisdom that heavenly knowledge, that heavenly understanding, the highest things, and the right use of those highest things in the life in which we live. We need that spirit We need spiritual songs sung to us, 316. We need to know that we have the spirit of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So how are we filled? By God, with knowledge, with wisdom, and spiritual understanding. Now, there is an Old Testament or a couple Old Testament allusions with the language we see. The words filled, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And I do think it's more than just an echo you're like, what's an echo? When we seek to understand how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, there are clear quotations. Paul says it is written, he quotes it, right? There are allusions, right, that are more than three words that could be in the section. And then there are echoes, maybe one word, maybe two words. They're still, the writers are alluding to something in the old. I think there is an allusion going on here for us. And I think there are three places which we see this allusion, and it all has to do with temple building. All has to do with building the house of God. And so one place is Exodus chapter 3. Exodus, sorry, Exodus chapter 31, verse 3. And Exodus 31, verse 3. And then later on in 35 as well. Talking about the same guys. Bezalel and Ohaliab. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. God has given him the ability to build the temple of the Lord. Later on, it comes up in 1 Kings 7, verse 14. This is with a pagan, or I guess maybe not a pagan, but one who was of Tyre, Hiram of Tyre, Huram from Tyre. He was the son of the widow from the chapter seven, verse 14. Uh, He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. He is building the temple. In Exodus, they're building the tabernacle. Here he's building the temple, the presence of the Lord God Most High. And there is another place in Isaiah chapter 11 as well to describe what the branch or the stump would do. Now, we know that Israel fails to bring about the glory of God. Israel's tabernacle fails and pales, and it really points to one who is the greater tabernacle. And what's so interesting about the book of Colossians When it says, in him all the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily, there's temple language going on there. And perhaps as G.K. Beale says, one of the heresies that was being taught is that these men entered into the temple 
by way of contemplation. These men entered into the presence of God with the way of, by way of contemplation. What Paul is doing is trying to highlight the way in which we enter into the temple is by way of Christ, who is the head. And the reality is, is that the church is the temple in him as his body. And as Christ builds out uh, his presence among the world, he does so in the church. He does so amongst God's people. He does so as the, as the, the branch of Jesse who builds the kingdom. And in fact, there are many places in the prophet that speak about the branch who's going to build the temple of the Lord. But in Isaiah 11, the branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in Colossians, he's going to highlight that we grow in him. We are built up in him. We have redemption in him, walking worthy of the Lord in him. And so what Beale says, Paul is praying that God would fill believers with the spirit nor that they would build their ethical lives skillfully, as verse 10 will make clear, as the body of Christ, as he builds his tabernacle and builds his temple by the spirit, as he is the head and we are the body. Christ is building his church. Christ is the tabernacle, is the temple who builds his church, who builds his tabernacle, who builds his temple, who is the temple, that he might have uh, the preeminence in all things. That's how he spreads his glory throughout the ends of the earth. That's how he reconciles all things in himself. It is in his people and in his church. And we, his people, ought to glorify him with spiritual wisdom, understanding, and the knowledge of his will. And so we must walk as the New Testament, New Covenant people who have communion with him with this blessed reality of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And notice the purpose for being filled. It ought not to be some sort of vain knowledge, but there ought to be right practice that comes from right knowledge. Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Grammar helps us here. It's a purpose. He says here, you be filled with the Lord, filled with these things. Why? In order that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. If we know the truth, if we know who God is, if we are filled with the spirit, then we ought to, as God's people, seek to walk in a way that doesn't please ourselves, but ought to please him. We ought to walk in such a way consistent and in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we have been saved. And obviously the Lord here is the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to him as the redeemer in whom the fullness of the deity dwells. He is our head and therefore we ought to please him. In 2.6, he's going to say, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. And the language of walking very much indicates it is a something that is, uh, is, is, is throughout our lives, something that permeates our entire life. In chapter 3, um, 3 verse 13, He's going to say, when you forgive one another, bear with one another. The reason is, as Christ has also forgiven you, so you must do. That's why we have to be patient and kind and forgiving with people. Because Christ is patient and kind and forgiving to us. 
A bad reason to leave a church, as I said last time, is if someone looks at you funny, if someone sinned against you, you know what? You got to deal with that before you leave. Otherwise, you're going to bring your baggage to whatever church you go to. Deal with it right away. Deal with that sin right away, just as Christ has forgiven us. And so we, that's one way in which we walk worthy. He's going to unpack more throughout the letter how we walk worthy of him, fully pleasing him. But he wants us to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. The gospel should never lead to a life of willful sinning on the rationale that I am redeemed. I can please myself. Now we highlight and teach that one does not earn his way of salvation by way of working, but works are an evidence of one's salvation in Christ. In Philippians chapter 127, he says, we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We live in a manner consistent with the gospel. The gospel is something proclaimed. Christ lived, died, and rose again. It's not what St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. That's a terrible advice and does not follow what the Bible says. However, we must live in a manner consistent with that gospel. Now, there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ, and we are forgiven in him, but If we're saved, if we're redeemed, if he's our master, should we not seek to serve our master according to his ways? True knowledge ought to lead to walking worthy, or at least a desire to walk worthy. Davenant says, as therefore from true knowledge arises the study of holiness and the practice of good works. So again, from this fruitfulness, knowledge itself takes a new increase. We understand, we grow. Wow, that's how we grow and we grow some more. But he also says, as also from ignorance arises an abandoned life. So again, from this abandoned life, ignorance, ignorance and spiritual stupidity is increased. If we don't know who our God is, we're not going to know how to please him. And if we don't know how to please him, it's only going to increase in ignorance and spiritual stupidity. And what is pleasing to God is again determined by his word. He desires obedience, not sacrifice. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of rationalizing certain things and manipulating things in order to have our desires met. But I just, I just have a heart for God I just really want to do this very thing. It comes up a lot in the ministry sometimes, but I have a heart. I just really, I just really want to preach. That's great. You really want to preach. Awesome. But there's objectives to follow, right? Anyone desires the office of a ministry? Great. Awesome. The I desires the office of an elder. Wonderful. Great. But then he says, here's what he must be. And so often, at least this was my experience in other churches, you get converted and they're like, wow, you have a heart for God. Let's put you right into the ministry. Let's have you help children. You're the blind leading the blind. It's, you know, you can teach this way. That'd be great. Let's have them teach and see what, that is not the way it is supposed to be. And emotional arguments abound. I'm sorry. We just like to play with people's emotions. You and I do it. People do it. It just happens. But his heart his heart, I don't care. It doesn't matter if its heart is into, into it or not. Is it following God's? Well, now, hopefully their heart is into it and everything follows you know, suit, but it's not just someone has a heart. There ought to be some sort of recognition 
of what ought to be done. And God's will says, when it comes to the ministry, here's what an elder must be. We cannot rationalize our sin. We cannot explain away our sin because it feels good. God wants me to feel good. God wants me to be who I am. I mean, that is rationalized a lot or used a lot from people from LGBTQ who say they're Christians. Well, God wants me to feel this way. I mean, it's how I naturally think. It's how I naturally feel. Wouldn't God want me to act this way? Not according to what he says in his word. It's very, we do it often. And don't think you don't do it because I do it a lot. We ought not to engage in emotional arguments. I'm sure the heretics felt like they were pleasing God. We're, we're doing the things of God. I mean, the Jews, when they killed Jesus, like we're, we're doing the things of God, right? We explain away things are so easily because we think we desire it rather than taking every thought captive and being reformed by God's word. So we ought to be careful. We ought to be on guard. We ought to grow in the knowledge of his will. This really is the prayer for us all, isn't it? We ought not to think that we have arrived. We ought to continually grow in the grace and knowledge. What is pleasing, what is God honoring. This is our purpose in life. This is the purpose of the saints. And notice too, Colossians is full of high Christology. Here's who Jesus is. Here's who he is in his deity. Here's who he is in his, in, his, in his incarnation. Here's what he's done for us. That ought to be something that we ponder often and consider often. It ought to lead to right living and good works for the people of God. So we ought not to think we have arrived. That's why reading is good. Reading your Bible more, coming to church more, being under the preaching more. It's always a good thing for the people of God. And there are many things in which I, many things I'm sure in which you believed before, but as you've read more, you've come to hopefully a greater understanding and you change your view. That's okay. That's a good thing. That needs to happen. We need to be reading. That's why I have a reading day. I, I, I don't know that anybody boxed the fact that I have a reading day, but I need that reading day to be able to learn and grow and understand, to stay, you know, three steps ahead of you guys, you know, because you're all pretty smart. So I need to stay ahead that way. We all to always ought to grow. And if I dare say, I'm thankful for my mentors in this. They always said, just keep reading. Just keep reading. Just keep learning. Just that's a good thing to have. If we stop, we a we can get arrogant in our, in our reading, but if we stop and think we've found it and we've learned it all, we're not going to grow in the things of God as much as we should. Now, not everybody has time to read a lot, but if you don't have time to read a lot, pick the best books. And if you can't do that, be in church uh, as, as you're able. So we ought to grow in the knowledge of God, but have the humility. We ought to have the humility to recognize we have not arrived. So pray for the knowledge of his will and the increase of it. Let's then look secondly at prayer for our Christian walk, verses 10 through 14. This builds on what he says in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. <clears throat> and there are four participles here. They all go with walking. And how they work is they're teaching us how we walk worthy of the Lord. And there's four of them. By increasing or by bearing fruit, by increasing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened in him, 
and with thanksgiving, by thanking him. Those are the four ways in which we walk in the Lord that are emphasized here in verses 10 through 14. So we'll just go through those four. So how do we walk in the Lord? Well, first look, he says, by being fruitful in every good work. We ought to be a people that bear fruit and increase. Now, we already saw that in 1.6. He's already seen that they've brought forth fruit and have increased. I tried to point out there that there's an allusion to Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so what we see uh, as a failure from the first Adam, Paul is now applying in the, the, the triumph of the last Adam, how we spread God's glory, how we spread the truth to the ends of the earth, how we uh, manifest his glory to the ends of the earth is by being fruitful in every good work, by being God honoring. And clearly the image of bearing fruit is one of a tree. And one writer pointed this out. I never thought like this before, but to, for what purpose or to whom does a tree bear fruit? Not itself. It always bears fruit for another, doesn't it? It always bears fruit for its master. It always bears fruit for something else other than itself. And so we ought to bear fruit, dear brethren, not according to the commandments of men. He's going to hammer that home when we get to chapter two. And he says, don't, when the heretics say, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, he's going to highlight how this is according to the doctrines of men. And these things might have an appearance of wisdom. They might look like they're doing the things of the Lord, but in reality, they are not. And so one way to head that problem off at the pass, we bear fruit in every good work. And every good work is according to the commandments of God, according to the commandments of Jesus. In John 15, when he says, I am the true vine and you're the branches and branches bear fruit. How? That you might keep my commandments. In 1 John 2, how do you know that you have eternal life? My children will keep my commandments. My children, I don't write to you a new commandment, but an old commandment. But in a lot of ways, it is a new commandment. And the reason it's a new commandment is because it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason that it's old is because it is based on the Ten Commandments. You want to know how you can please God? The Ten Commandments. Not as a way of salvation, but as a way of living. Honoring God, not having idols, having right demeanor in worship, uh, uh, respecting and appreciating the day he's given for worship, honoring authorities, honoring our relationships. Don't murder, don't be angry, don't lust, don't steal, you know, don't be lazy, don't lie, tell the truth. Don't. I mean, that's how we bear fruit. That is being fruitful in every good work. And that's not legalism to say that because I'm not saying you have to earn your way. That's not what I'm saying. And it's also not legalism because I'm telling you it's the commandments of God you must follow. A legalist says, here's what I think. <laughs> and they're the ones who actually heap up uh, things upon and bear uh, uh, way down consciences that ought not to be weighed down. So we must be fruitful in every good work. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but there's the good syllogism that says, the Bible says a child of God will bear fruit. I can say by the grace of God, albeit imperfectly, that I bear some fruit. Ergo, I'm a child of God. And that's what John is saying in 1 John, to encourage the saints that you might know you have everlasting life. So we must bear fruit in every good work. That's how we walk in a manner pleasing with the Lord. The second way in which we walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord is increase 
and the knowledge of God. Now think about what happened with that first Adam. He was he was made in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That fell. And then Christ redeems us, and we have the knowledge, according to the new man, in the image of the new man in Colossians chapter 3. And one of the blessings of knowing God was being having communion with him and having his presence with us in a favorable way. Well, what did that first Adam do? He broke that communion, didn't he? And he removed that blessed uh, bliss that we had with him. And that's why when it comes to saving knowledge, it is eternal life, is it not? John 17, Jesus prays that you might know the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. This is everlasting life, that you might know the one true God and his son, whom you have sent. The knowledge of God ought to produce fruit in our walk, and the fruit of our walk is increasing in the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God and all things not God. Want to know why? There's false gods out there. Not that there are actually false gods out there, but false gods are taught out there. And so what do we have to do? In order to combat that, we need to know the one true God. Now, I'm not saying, again, you have to read a ton of theology, although that wouldn't hurt. But if you only have so much time, I give lists for a reason. I, you know, here's only so much time. Here, just read these very things. It's because you know, we don't always have a lot of time, but we should read some of those blessed things. So we might know what is, who he is and what pleases him versus those precepts of man. Increasing in the knowledge of God will teach us who he is and teach us what it is that pleases him in this world. So we must grow in our knowledge of God and our knowledge of what pleases him. And thankfully, he's very patient with us. We ought to be very patient with others as well, right? Sometimes we're not very patient with others. I know, I'm sorry to say this, but I can get irritated really easily. <laughs> I shouldn't. I shouldn't get irritated really easily. And I have a lot of pet peeves that I shouldn't have. But unfortunately, I do. The reality is we ought to be patient with people. People come into our church. They're not used to certain things. We have to recognize, hey, yeah, people are learning. That's fine. People want to come in. We need to be patient with people. One thing that does really bother me in light of, you know, commandments of men is when people have their opinions, but actually don't join a church. That just really bothers me. I mean, God has said, you know, we ought to be, you know, we are part of the body. We ought to be members and we ought to be added uh, according to Acts chapter 1, we have to be enrolled according to Matthew 28. So often we are like these philosophers, these vain ph philosophical teachers. We think we know everything. I do think I know everything. I actually do think I know everything. But it's, it's, but it's wrong to walk into another church thinking you know everything and trying to tell them everything that you know. That's not something we should do, let alone men who want to be teachers sometimes. And this, I actually have people actually in mind from years ago who want to be teachers, but they've never been a member of a church anywhere. Are you kidding me? Now, again, I should be patient. I'm ranting. You're probably like, what's the point of all this? Why is this even talking about this? My point is we have to grow in the knowledge of God and in the precepts of him and recognize we don't know as much as we think. Grow and increase in the knowledge of him. I don't know as much as I should. You don't know as much as you should. In fact, I heard one reform, or I read one reformer say that when it comes to the things we know and the things we don't know, 
the things we don't know far outweigh the things we know. Like it's like not even close when it comes to the things we don't know versus the things we actually know. So may God be gracious to us and merciful and may we grow in the knowledge of him. So we ought to increase in the knowledge of God. Fourth, when it comes to walking in the Lord, and this is what I need, and I'm sure you need as well. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering. Brethren, where does our strength lie? How do we walk in him? By his strength, by his power, which he gives to us. In Ephesians 3.17, he prays that he would strengthen us with might in the inner man by the spirit. That's why we ought to pray in our Christian walk. Lord, I'm struggling. Lord, I'm weak. Lord, I need your help day by day. Lord, I don't know as much as I ought to know. Please, please help me increase in this understanding as I read difficult things, as I read your word, and as I seek to honor you, as I seek to bear fruit, I need your strength to do such things. And he is good to give that to us by his glorious power. What's interesting is Beal connecting it with sometimes this attitude of spiritual laziness he says, some people can use this. Well, God's going to strengthen me. I can just live any way I want. Listen to what he says. Interestingly, some might think that such a theology results in an attitude of spiritual laziness. I don't need to be motivated to obey God since God's power will work through me as a believer, regardless of whether I'm motivated to obey. On the contrary, the genuine saints should be motivated to carry out God's precepts because they understand that God has provided the power for them to do so. The fact that God gives us might and power is not an excuse to explain away our wickedness. It's meant to be something that spurs us on and to encourage us in our Christian walk. Christ strengthens us. The spirit strengthens us. God strengthens us. And notice what he strengthens us for. Patience and long-suffering. It really is hard to be patient, isn't it? And it's, I'm sure it was very hard to be patient throughout the centuries, but those little thing called, things called phones are not helping us in any sort of way. I mean, the internet like goes off for a second and we're ready to throw our phone across the room, right? I mean, we don't get our Amazon order right when we said we were going to get it and we just were ready to lose our minds. I mean, these phones do nothing for when it comes to our I guess it is a lesson in patience. You have to be really, really patient because we expect things to be immediate, right? We expect things to be right now. Now, I don't think that's what he has in mind. I'm just highlighting how we're not very patient people. And that's why we need his strength to be patient and long-suffering. And what's interesting, men of old who are way smarter than we are, they were just built differently back then. The way they wrote, the way they thought, the way they thought theologically. It shouldn't be the case because we have more knowledge than they do, but they just thought differently. And Chrysostom makes an interesting point about patience and long-suffering. He says, long-suffering is for those we know could change. That's a paraphrase, right? We have long-suffering. You know what? People are here. They're learning. They're growing. They're going to change. Patience is for those who don't. Patience is for those who are probably not going to change. Patience is for those who we might not see any growth. That's hard, isn't it? We, I think we do expect people to change and we hope people to change, but the reality is people might not change. And so we need God's mercy and strength to be patient with those very people. And even too, 
Patience and long-suffering is required to deal with heretics. Patience and long-suffering certainly is in view here to deal with those difficult men. And some of them, according to 2 Timothy 2, they could come to saving knowledge and find repentance, right? That's, that's, that's something that is important. That's why we tell them the truth. But we must have patience for those who will not change and to be long-suffering with the hope of those that will. And we need God's strength to help us with that very thing, which is very, very hard for all of us to do. So may God give us the strength we need. So that's the third way in which we please the Lord, by his strength. And the last thing when it comes to how we please the Lord, it is by giving thanks, verse 12, and you'll unpack what we thank God for in verses 12 through 14. And notice, with joy, with joy could go with patience and long suffering, or it could go with giving thanks. And certainly we ought to have a cheerfulness of spirit and esteem uh, the reproach uh, of, uh, uh, that we receive by being in Christ above the riches of this world. We need God's grace to help us in all that we endure. And we need God's grace to help us even with joy to give thanks. And perhaps this comes back around with what we saw in chapter one, verse three, we give thanks to the God and father. And he continues to come. He comes again and says, here's what we thank the father for furthermore. I notice it's all that the father has done for us in the son and by the spirit. Notice what do we thank God for? The Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Who is it that makes us fit for the new creation? Who is it makes us fit for the inheritance that we receive? It's not us. It is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is the one whose kingdom shall last forever. Daniel 7, the one set apart by God to be his saints. And notice, it is of the saints and the light. He's going to contrast this with the darkness in just a moment. But the way in which we are in the light is not by anything of ourselves, but God the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the light, to receive this blessed inheritance. And that language of inheritance does refer, I think, or alludes back to uh, the promised land in the Old Testament. And so what's happening here is Paul is saying, once again, the New Testament people are the church. The New Testament people are the people of God. The church is the inheritance. The church is receiving that inheritance. It is for the new covenant people in Christ. That language is used in Deuteronomy 10 and in Joshua as well, highlighting that the promised land was a type of the new heavens and the new earth that we have. And we have it now. He has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. It's something we possess already. The light has shone. We have the light. We are in the light in him. We ought to give God thanks for this very thing. But then notice in verses 13 and 14, who it is who delivered us and how it is we receive this blessed inheritance. Verse 13, he, the father by the son, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now, what he's doing here is the kingdom of the son. There's a transfer taking place, power of darkness into the power of light. What we once were to what we are now, whose dominion we were under to whose dominion we are under now. In the language of kingdom, he's equating very clearly with inheritance. And notice, even though we don't see it in its full yet, he has conveyed us 
into the kingdom of the son of his love. That is, if you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom of the son of his love. We have it now. We partake of it now inaugurated. We long for its fullness to come in. And what gives us strength as we walk this world before that fullness comes in is the fact that we are already in it. We've already been conveyed from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the power, into the kingdom of the son of his love. Kingdom, I do believe, is the new heavens and new earth, the salvation of souls. That's what it means when the kingdom comes in. And the expression of that is the church. And it's in the kingdom of the son of his love, the one who actually has dominion, the one who actually reigns. And there possibly could be, I don't see it as much as Beale sees it, but Beale's smarter than me, so he might see it better. But it could refer to the Davidic covenant, the one who, who was promised to David, the one who God said, I will be the father to him and he will be my son. Or Psalm 2, which happens before... David comes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my, oh no, that's Psalm 110. Sorry, I will tell of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And in Psalm 2, who is it who has dominion really? Who is it who has reign, who has power really? In light of those nations that rage and plot vain things, is it not the son? And the nations are called, the kings are allowed to come and kiss the son, lest he be angry. That is, there's mercy and forgiveness in the son. But if you're not in the son, he will make his enemies his footstool and he shall judge them. And so we've been transferred into his kingdom. And it's the kingdom of the son of his love, the one who he loves eternally and the one in whom we are loved in him. And he's going to unpack who he is in verses 15 through 18, what he has done for us, his identity in the following verses in verses 15 through 18, how we are transferred, what he has done as the son for us, or who he is really as the son, the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. But we have been conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. And notice why or how. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The reason that we have an inheritance, the reason we've been conveyed is through the redemption that comes from the one who is the son, the one who's freed us from our sins, the one who's changed us and given us eternal life, the one who has transferred us from the, or the one who defeated darkness and death itself. In him, we have redemption. And notice what is characterized by that redemption, forgiveness of sins, mercy and forgiveness, brethren. Now, perhaps as we've been going through this and thinking about all the ways in which we ought to walk worthy of our Lord, perhaps you are thinking, I do not walk worthy of my Lord. I very rarely bear fruit. I really struggle with the increase in the knowledge of him. I really fail to ask him for the strength that I need. And I really suck at patience and long suffering. And I'm not a very joyful person. And I'm kind of grumbly and complaining. I don't thank my God at all. Well, brethren, in him, there is forgiveness of sins. That's the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ is he forgives all the sins of the saints, past, present, and future. And if you sin, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness in him. But the reason, brethren, we can bear fruit, the reason, brethren, we can walk worthy of the Lord, the reason, brethren, we can be filled with the knowledge of him 
is because of the redemption that comes from the Son. In him, we have redemption through his blood. And what this ought to teach us and the application for us, really the whole section is application for us. We ought to cultivate in the strength of the Lord by his word, these godly graces. We ought to grow in him, grow in understanding of him. We ought to bear fruit by the spirit in him and grow in the knowledge of him. We ought to do all those things. And John Eady gives an excellent quote. He says, a God in shadow creates superstition and the view of him in only one part of his character will according to its color lead either to fanaticism or to mysticism. The more we know of his tender mercy and majesty, the more conversant we are with his divine providence, either as we find him in creation or meet him in providence, and especially the deeper experience we have of the might of his arm and sympathy of his bosom in redemption, the more will the spirit confide in him, the more will it love the object of its living trust. In short, the more spiritual growth we will enjoy. Growth in him growth in Christ, grounded in the salvation that is found in him. Ponder that salvation often. Think of that salvation often. You are now saints in the light. Walk in the light in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, you are still in darkness. But there is a light who has shone, a light who shines now. I pray that the spirit would shine the light of your sin upon you and shine the light of Christ in your hearts. And may you come and receive forgiveness by faith in him. For if you look to him, not to other things, not to other vain philosophy, not to yourself, you will find mercy in this one who defeated sin and death, the one who defeated darkness, in whom there is everlasting life. I'm just going to close with what Jesus says in Luke 22:53. In his darkest hour, in the darkest hour of history, As Jesus is arrested, he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you do not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus walked through the power of darkness that he might shine as a light in this world. And he really is the light of the world for his people. Brethren, if you're in him, walk in the light. If you're not in him, believe in the light. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for all that you do for us in your word and in redemption. Thank you, O God, for the prayers that you give to us or that uh, we see in your word that we ought to emulate and ought to pray for ourselves and for our church. We do pray, O God, that you would forgive us for our grumbling and complaining. Forgive us for our lack of patience and long-suffering. We pray, oh God, that you'd forgive us for not relying upon you in your strength. Forgive us for not uh, increasing in the knowledge of you. Forgive us for not bearing fruit. But we thank you, oh God, that there is forgiveness in Christ. We pray that we would walk in a manner pleasing uh, of you. We'd walk in a manner worthy, fitting of you, oh God, as redeemed in you. And thank you, oh God, that you're, you're the one who has qualified us and made us partakers of the inheritance. You're the one who has redeemed us from the power of darkness. You're the one who has given us the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for all that you've done in in our Christ. Thank you for the triune work of God in salvation. Thank you the Father conveys 
The Son redeems. The Spirit gives us understanding. Thank you for all of these things, O God. And we ask that as we go into the world, we would self-examine, that we would consider our own hearts, but ultimately look to the one uh, who is the object of our faith, namely our Christ. So help us to grow in knowledge. Help us to grow in the truth. Help us to cultivate the gifts and graces. Help us to cultivate spiritual disciplines in our life, O God. And may we always be reformed by what your word said. Please forgive us for our arrogance and our pride. And may we continually grow in the knowledge of you day by day. So may we be filled, O God, with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And we also pray that you'd strengthen us in this. Be pleased to save sinners in all things. We pray that you'd be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.